recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 45 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cam. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. And you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Uh, and you can get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. You and here we are again. What's happening? Oh, not too much, Cam. What's going on? What's going on your end? How are things? You know, we're, we're pretty much back to normal here. I think I sort of touched on this last week, but like, you know, everyone's back to work. Uh, there's no more split sort of A-B teams going in. Uh Life has returned to normal. Restaurants are open in the evenings. There's still a, a table limit of four, but that's pretty good. So it, it feels like the worst is behind us here, although it's felt like that before and it wasn't that way. <laughs> Hopefully it is that way this time. Wow. Well, uh, that makes one of us. <laughs> that's not not the situation here at all. Uh, we're, we're still pretty much in the same lockdown scenario we've been in for I, I don't even, I don't even know I mean I know you and I were talking about just before we started recording I, like I have a, I have such a difficult time listening to the news now you know I kind of listen to the the headlines at the top of the hour and then I effectively have to turn it off because it's just delays on vaccines and the rollout being pushed back and are we going to get approval for this drug? Are we going to get approval for that drug? And I understand that this stuff is critically important and that I should be up to date with what's going on, but I'm just, I'm so, I'm just so exhausted. And and I, here I am now talking about it. So <laughs> listeners, I'm sorry. I understand this is what you're hearing from every other station, but uh, yeah, I'm just, I don't, I you know, can't, I can't do it anymore, Cam. I you know, can't do it. It's interesting because, I mean, we were also off the air talking about the United States and how they've turned it around so quickly. I mean, kind of kudos to you guys down there. You know, in terms of vaccines and just how, like even just a few weeks ago, it looked like, you know, we were going to go to some dark days, uh, you know, with the with the UK virus and the the Brazilian strain and so on and so forth. Um, but it, but it's really been been, you know, managed very well. I mean, what what is going on sort of where you are, you and in terms of the management? Why, why do you think it's not working out so well? Well, Cam, uh, that would be an entire show. <laughs> Maybe too much to discuss itself. here. Not even in, not even an episode. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we'd have to have several because, again, you know, you always run into these sort of jurisdictional issues. We're not unlike the United States in that regard, right? Where, you know, the rollout from one state to the next is markedly different. We're having all kinds of issues in that regard from province to province. And then, you know, you ultimately have the federal government and what they're doing. It's just been, uh, you know, uh, particularly in Ontario, a complete and utter gong show. Um, I, I would be shocked if any member of my family is in a position to be vaccinated before November of wow. this year. Um, wow. I mean, and, and I, I don't think that that is... Um, hyperbole or sensationalist, I think that's probably consistent with what the reality is going to to play out as. You know, last point on this. It's interesting here in Hong Kong and in Asia generally, because there's actually a lot of skepticism about the vaccines. Uh, there's a lot of people who aren't sure if they want to get the vaccination. You know, there's there's some real doubt about it. And, and yet I see in the U S and Canada and some other Western countries, there's, you know, um, huge interest in it and people are getting that vaccine as soon as it's available. And it's interesting to see how, you know, two different cultures or multiple different cultures can look at, at these vaccines differently because it seems like there's not as much sort of skepticism back there. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, as you know, we, we, we have our fair share of anti-vaxxers yeah, cam. They, they do exist. Um, I think, you know, like a lot of sort of questionable political views, they're dormant and they're quiet and they're not necessarily advertising their position on these issues. But rest assured, they exist. Yep. And they'll be back. 
Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, Ewan, let's talk law. What have you got happening? <laughs> well, Cam, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the Me Too movement on this show, right? Mm-hmm. And the impact on the workplace. I was looking at some of the some of the stats in preparing for the, the segment of the show today, and I came across a Harris poll from the late, late 2020 um, of over 1,000 U.S. employees who said 76% of them said that the Me Too movement has had a positive impact on how hmm. sexual harassment is addressed in the workplace. And That's you know good. what? I think that that, at least in terms of my experience dealing with employers and employees is probably about, about right. And mm-hmm. that, you know, a lot of employers, thankfully, they haven't just been paying lip service to these issues, Cam. Um, they've been implementing actual substantive reforms. So things like revisions to policies and procedures, manuals around sexual harassment, developing workplace training to actually educate staff on what inappropriate behavior looks like, because contrary to what you might think, um, a lot of employees still to this day aren't really clear on where those lines need to be drawn in a workplace context. So, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of good training around that. And, you know, then clear policies and procedures on reporting inappropriate behavior when it occurs. And this is always, always such an issue when, an event occurs in a workplace, um, particularly an event of sexual harassment, how do you report it? How do we deal with that? Um, So, you know, we've seen some really, really, really good development around these issues, Cam. But one of the industries, of course, that's faced the greatest reckoning, um, and it's exactly where it started, is film and television, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and rather than wade into the bad, I actually wanted to talk about a positive story this week. You know, okay. often in my segments, Cam, as you know, <laughs> we're not really dealing with the the, the good. It's mm-hmm. always, you know, this is wrong. Some and problem. Employers aren't doing this and employees shouldn't do that. Well, you know, I think this is actually a positive outcome of the of the Me Too movement. Okay. And that was, res- yeah, it revolves around the breakout series Bridgerton cam. Are you familiar with this show? And so I've heard about this show, but I have not watched it. So I, I'm not enough to comment on it anyway. All right. So th- this has actually become, as I understand the most watched series on Netflix and in researching the segment, uh, I hadn't seen it either. Um, I put on the first episode, my, my, my wife and I spent our Saturday night uh, watching some Bridgerton. Mm-hmm. So I've, uh, I, I could kind of get up to speed and you know, the, the show cam is based on a, a Julia Quinn uh, series of best-selling novels mm-hmm. it's set in 19th century Britain. The show focuses on the Bridgerton family. They're kind of a, an aristocratic London family. They've got like eight kids. So there's sort of four sons and four daughters. And, um, but one of the cool things about the show is that it's set in a racially integrated Regency era for London, which certainly, you know, has kind of defined the show as markedly different than your, your typical period piece. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's our context. Now, why am I talking about this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Get to the point. Well, the other thing that's really defined the show cam has been it's really steamy sex scenes and more specifically the choreography around them. So the show hired Lizzie Talbot, and she's what's called an intimacy coordinator, Cam. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I had never heard of such a job. I didn't know such a position existed. But apparently, it's quite a booming thing within the the film and television you, you know, profession. It is interesting that you brought this up because I actually have heard of this. Uh, because you're right, it is very new, actually. Um, but since me too, yeah, it's sort of a field that has kind of sprung up 
and it's a fascinating field. I actually, from what I understood at one time, there was only two people doing this qualified to do this. Um, and they've been quickly sort of training others and getting standards in place. But, but I'll leave that with you to kind of explain what they do. Well, well, yeah. So, you know, as a viewer, you can often forget when you're watching a film or television, that you're watching actors, right? And this is their, this is their job. Um, and that ultimately there's a director or there is a producer who is their boss and is telling them what to do. And, you know, despite the entertainment value, it doesn't really change the fact that these employers still have a duty to ensure that they're providing their workers with a safe working environment that's free from harassment and sexual harassment and discrimination. So that's really where the intimacy consultant steps in. So, you know, she helps deal with issues and boundaries around consent. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll put some some links in the show notes. There's lots of articles and she's she's given a number of interviews talking about this. But here's one sort of interesting quote to kind of sum up what her process is like. So she's saying, quote, it might be and she's talking about two actors sort of blocking and engaging on how they're going to choreograph a, a sex scene. She says, it might be that we're working with containers. Like you can put your hand from the top of my neck to the top of my lower back or anywhere in between. You've got freedom to do what you want in that area, but it doesn't go anywhere else. And, you know, this might seem like such a small thing, Cam, but you can imagine if this is your profession, if this is what you're doing for work, and you're having to engage in sort of sexually explicit scenes with a partner who basically is a stranger. Mm -hmm. These are not people that you, you know. Um, you can understand why it's important to establish clear boundaries around consent and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. So I, the first I had heard of this, Ewan, was in an interview with Kate Winslet, actually, on, uh, on, on Fresh Air. And I'm going to try and find that because she walked through what these people do. And, I mean, she's obviously been in Hollywood for a very long time. And she did talk a little bit ab about this, how, you know, most of the time she said there's been no issue. That, you know, you've got, you're, you're dealing with professionals for the most part and, you feel comfortable, but there are those times where, you know, maybe you are preparing for a sex scene. You're a younger uh, actor and maybe not entirely comfortable. And the only people around you are in the room are, are men and that it can be quite intimidating. And, you know, even if everything is, is done by the book and up front and on the table, that can still be intimidating. And that having one of these sort of intimacy coaches or, or facilitators there is just someone to go to, to talk to them, just to, you know, get reassurance or to get some guidance from and just make sure that everything is, is okay. And I can see how that could be extremely valuable for people um, in that field. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it also speaks to just how complicated the issue of consent can be in a working environment like that, right? So you could have two actors who are working on that particular scene and maybe a director calls out an action saying, you know, grab them here or, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And that actor and actress engaged in that scene, they might look at each other and that actor might have the direct consent of the actress and the actress may have the direct consent of the actor but we're not looking at the larger picture, which is, well, we have a director who just randomly called out a particular action. Is that appropriate? Was there any consent discussed around whatever that instruction was? How do we do that? What are the boundaries um, of proceeding with, with that particular instruction or action? So, you know, much as it might seem like sort of a, a bizarre and kind of novel role, it's almost hard to imagine how there hasn't always been intimacy consultants in these environments. Yeah. And I think these are the sort of things that will crop up in other areas too. It's a good example of just a policy changing or something being added to make people feel more, more safe in a field that, you know, clearly needed it to some degree. And um, I think, yeah, it is something for other employers or people belonging to groups, social groups or whatever it might be. Um, just to make sure that everyone's okay. And I know that sometimes this can seem maybe a bit Pollyannish or something in the sense that, you know, especially if it's sort of a smaller group or smaller office that maybe you think you don't need this kind of thing. But um, 
I, I you know it, it is worth asking your asking your staff or talking to people because um, anything that can sort of help make people feel more at ease is ultimately good for your business and good for your company. Well, and that's just it, right? I mean, I understand the majority of our listeners they probably don't work in the tele, you know the film and television industry, but you know this is a great example of how you know something like the Me Too movement can have that sort of cataclysmic impact on on in the employment environment. Um, and, and to your point, Cam, absolutely. You know, I would encourage all employers, whether large or you know a, a very small independent business to communicate with their with their employees around these issues and ensure that they're doing everything they can to have sufficient mechanisms in place to ensure those employees feel comfortable to make sure that if there are any workplace issues around harassment or sexual harassment and discrimination that there are mechanisms for them to bring those those issues forward confidentially and safely without fear of reprisal. Because of course, this is always the issue. It always comes down to an issue of reprisal where someone is effectively turning a blind eye to inappropriate conduct in a workplace environment can because they're scared of what the repercussions are going to be. So that's an issue, whether you work at a company with 5,000 employees or whether you work at a company with five employees, the relevance is there and it's present and it's real each and every day, no matter where you work. Yep. Very good advice, Ewan. Um, anything else on this one? No, uh, I, I think that's it. Uh, check it out. And, and actually, and just one last bit on this, Cam, this is not going to be something that's going to disappear. As I understand, uh, there's now an intimacy consultant working on I May Destroy You, which is a, a popular HBO show, Normal People, it's a sin. So, you know, I think this is great news that we're, we're seeing sort of the proliferation of this role um, across the industry. Fantastic. Absolutely. And um, what I have to talk about today is related to me too, as well. Stay tuned. Show your support to the PR and law podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. So you and when this broke last week, I didn't want to talk about it on this show. And it's about Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. And, you know, we've dealt with cases like this on this show before, which is why I didn't really want to get into it. And then my mind started changing as it developed. So, I mean, since since 2017, you know, we've seen hundreds of women come forward as a result of Me Too, right? And, and most of them have been bringing up stories that happened many years ago, you know, things that, that the women have been carrying with them for a long time and then shared and it's clear, you know, as a result of all of that and what you were just talking about now, um, that things have changed. The world's changed. Expectations have changed. And I think, you know, one case in point of that is the the, the Britney Spears documentary. And, you know, we, we, we touched on it last week, but, you know, I did finally watch it over the last week. And um, oh, how how was it? I'm I planned I was hoping to try and get to it tonight i don't think that that's going to happen i've got some you know, work to do after the show but tell me about it it's kind it? of shocking because it does go back into the 90s and sort of how the media portrayed her and and not just britney spears monica Lewinsky, um and some others and it's kind of shocking actually even by today's standards uh, you know what the media kind of got away with back then and it and it's traumatizing like looking through it in a in a new lens this way it's amazing that things have, have changed so much in such a short period of time, because I mean, the nineties were not that long ago, but anyway, I mean, there has been on these issues, a bit of a, a playbook where, you know, somebody comes forward, it's taken seriously, you know, a, an organization or a company conducts an investigation and then some punitive action is taken if they feel it's necessary. And, and I think that has been fairly standard through this process, but the Cuomo case is a bit unique. And I'm going to get into that in a second, but I want to make sure that everybody understands sort of where the case is at at this point and what's happened so far. So it was actually last Wednesday uh, that the first accusation uh, was made against Cuomo. And uh, this is from Fox News. 
Governor Andrew Cuomo, already under fire from Republicans and some of his fellow Democrats over nursing home deaths in his state and allegations of a cover-up he denies, is now facing more scrutiny over sexual harassment allegations from Lindsey Boylan, who had worked with the governor. Five state senators want New York's attorney general now to investigate. Cuomo had denied the claims when they first surfaced back in December. For the first time, she is detailing those claims in an online medium post accusing the governor of unwanted kissing and touching, making unflattering comments to women about their weight and ridiculing them about their romantic relationships. Now, Boylan says Cuomo constantly sought her out and had staffers arrange meetings with her where he made inappropriate comments. That's Fox's Brian Yenis. Then, Ewan, over the weekend, Charlotte Bennett came forward. Now, she served as a health policy advisor uh, and then an executive assistant to Andrew Cuomo. And this report is from Bloomberg. A second former aide to New York's governor is accusing him of sexual harassment. Charlotte Bennett was an executive assistant and health policy advisor under Andrew Cuomo until she left the job in November. She told the New York Times the governor harassed her late last spring, including specifically on June 5th, when she says he asked her a number of questions about her personal life, including whether she thought age mattered in a romantic relationship. In a statement to the newspaper, Cuomo said he believed that he had been acting as a mentor and, quote, never made advances towards her and never intended to act inappropriately. So that's where we stand, Ewan. And, you know, you say, what is the new twist here? Well, I think number one is this is recent behavior. This is last year. This is after Me Too broke out in 2017. So th- this is this is not an old case by any stretch. And then the second part here, um, you know, while while the first accuser, Lindsay Boylan, said that he did or accused him of of kissing her, in Charlotte Bennett's case. She is accusing him of harassment through words. There was no touching, no assault. And I think that kind of opens up a unique little window into this as well that is somewhat different from some of the other cases. There's all kinds of twists to this, Ewan, honestly. I mean, so Lindsay Boylan first, you know, tweeted her accusations in December, as was mentioned in that report, um, but didn't really shed any light on it then until she published a Medium post, which is another popular thing to do uh, these days is to sort of spell everything out um, on Medium. And really, I mean, her accusations were around, you know, that that kiss that she was unwanted. Um, and then on a flight back to, to New York City, she says the governor suggested of playing strip poker with her on on the flight. Um, and then sort of other instances where, you know, the governor tried to be around her. Now, after, after those accusations, so that was Wednesday, and that's the first, Ewan, that we had heard anything uh, from 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 these accusers. And, um, you know, Cuomo's office came out quite quickly. Uh, they put out a statement which said, Miss Boylan's claims of inappropriate behavior are quite simply false, period. Very direct. I think that's kind of all-encompassing, in fact. Um, it's very broad. Um, and then... Uh, they also disputed her account on board that aircraft. I mentioned the strip poker thing. Uh, and they found four current and former officials who were on those flights. And all four said that conversation never happened. It did not happen. Uh, which are quite strong, well, I think. I mean, yeah, I, yes. I guess it, it is and it, it is and it is. And here's sort of my concern about stuff like that. This is not this is not uncommon. You know, here here's a little... Here's a little uh, peek at how the sausage is often made, Cam, in 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 litigation. You know, when you have uh, an employee that levels these sorts of allegations against uh, an employer or a manager, and you know the employer is looking to defend themselves, they very very quickly one of the first things that you will do, and I'm sure this is very consistent with what you do doing, uh, you know, in your line of work, Cam, is we try and line up as many people as we possibly can who will swear affidavits or sworn statements speaking to the character of these individuals or that they never bore witness to any of these events or any wrongdoing on the part of the individual. Uh, you know, this is just, it, it's so commonplace and yet it really, really doesn't address whether or not the events themselves took place. 
And I mean, really, a comment like that, if he was to make a comment like that, would it have been an earshot of any of these four individuals? Were they in the same, you know, close quarters mm-hmm. at the time? I mean, there's all kinds of explanations. And I'm not saying that this happened or it didn't happen. Obviously, I'm simply stating that just because four people came out and said it never happened certainly does not mean that it never happened. Yeah, I, that's it's a good point. And I agree with you uh, on that, Ewan, as well. Cuomo did come out swinging on Wednesday when these first accusations came out. But over the weekend, you know, Charlotte Bennett took a, a different tact. Rather than writing a long post on Medium, she did actually provide interviews to several news organizations, including the New York Times. And so there was a bit of a different kind of bent to some of the reports as a result of that. And after her uh, accusations, Cuomo did come out and he called for an outside investigation of, you know, these accusations. And uh, he appointed a former federal judge to conduct that investigation and he basically encouraged people to withhold judgment until the investigation is complete I, sorry I, I gotta i gotta jump in again i was I mean, gonna ask like, you anyway yeah what, what do you think you and <laughs> well well again i mean he's he's appointing a federal judge what's his relationship with this or with exactly. this former judge yeah um i mean if it's somebody that he ultimately knows is going to be sympathetic to his cause or that he's had a, a long-standing relationship with then that really sort of speaks to the integrity of the investigation. Now, I understand that, you know, a former judge who who is operating in this capacity, their reputation is effect- effectively staked on the fact that they're going to provide a fair and unbalanced, in, or, or fair, excuse me, it's a bit of a Freudian slip, I guess, <laughs> fair and unbiased investigation. And anybody who does workplace investigation work can will tell you that if you lose that, if you do not have the faith of your prospective client that you're going to provide a fair and unbiased investigation and and, and a fair report, mm-hmm. then you know, I mean, you're dead in the water. So when I, when I hear a former judge, that's sort of that's sort of interesting right off right off the bat. I, I wonder does this former judge actually have experience conducting workplace investigations? Is this something that he or she has become something of an expert on since retiring from the bench? Or are they simply just a former judge? Um, because it's a very, very, very different skill set. Interviewing witnesses, gathering that information, that fact-finding exercise, it's, it's a marked departure from what a judge mm-hmm. does on a bench. Yep. And that was my first thought was, what is the relationship here? Because, you know, Cuomo's been in, in politics in New York State for a very, very long time. And so he's going to have a, a, a big network um, of people who he's dealt with and worked with over the years, uh, many of whom I'm sure are going to have his back uh, in these cases. And again, like you, I'm not saying that that is the case here. Uh, just th- that, you know, we should be suspicious and be careful um, about it when we're assessing it. And, you know, Ewan, like I I have given this case some thought and, you know, uh, the first point I like I was thinking about what what can Andrew Cuomo do or what could he have done to deal with this? Because a lot of times we are dealing with, you know, cases that happened a while ago and then there were denials and and then we have a he he said, she said kind of situation. And and I was thinking, like, how, how can how can that be avoided from if, if, if Andrew Cuomo was, was my client, you know, what would I have said to try and avoid this kind of result? And I think the first one, and I was thinking about this, you know, when I was looking through the allegations of both of these women, Ewan, a big part of it was that they were scared of him, that he did make these advances. They, they were not, he didn't hold them down or anything, but he was clearly sending signals based on the information that I've read and they were uncomfortable and they did ask for transfers and were given transfers, at least in Charlotte, Charlotte's case, but they were still worried. They were fearful that he would seek retribution or that he would make their, you know, workplace unsafe or uncomfortable, that sort of thing. And so I was thinking, you know, the first thing he could have done when he found out that these women were transferring or uncomfortable, and I'm sure that he did find out because both women did raise the issue with either HR or his chief of staff. So I think he would have known is to apologize to them. I don't understand why that would be so difficult because if he could have sat down and said, 
look, this was a mistake. I'm very sorry. I didn't mean for you to be uncomfortable. Um, you know, he feels a lot of regret about it. And then, you know, promises to leave her alone, basically. Um, I wonder if they would have gone to medium and to the media about it. And maybe they would have. And again, I'm not taking sides on it. I want to make clear that I'm, I'm thinking in terms of if I were hired to provide advice, what would that advice be? And I think that was one that really popped up for me. You know, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm reminded of that old, this old adage that my mother always used to say to me, which is, you know, no matter what situation you find yourself in, an apology can never make matters worse. And Very then true. I think as you know, I sort of put my lawyer's hat on and I think, yeah. And then lawyers had mm-hmm. to go and sort of muddy up the waters on that. Right. Where we, we got to a place where, you know, an apology could be construed as some sort of admission of guilt or liability such that people are reluctant to apologize for things now. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I take your point. I, I just, I don't know that. And, and maybe this is where, you know, the lawyers and the PR people need to get in the room and, uh, and have some frank and honest discussions because, you know, I, I just don't know that anyone, any counsel would have said to Cuomo, yeah, sure, sit down with him and, uh, and offer an apology. Um, I suspect they, you know, would be the first ones to stand up and say, no, you say nothing. Our position is a full denial and, and that's it. And that's all we're going to say. And I get that in most cases. I think the reason I felt differently here is, especially in uh, in Charlotte Bennett's case, is that the concerns were verbal. And so he was asking her questions like, have you, you know, do you have a boyfriend? How is he? Have you ever dated an older man? Those kinds of questions, which are obviously would make anyone uncomfortable in that situation. And I think, you know, taking responsibility for saying your words made someone uncomfortable is a lot different from taking responsibility for sexual assault. And I think that's where kind of the difference lies, at least to me, because I think even in PR, you're right. If you're going to come out and apologize for something, that's you taking responsibility for it. And I know there's legal implications to that, but there's also PR implications because that's how it's understood. And I think in in this case, if he had had one-on-one discussions where he was saying this and being careful to to mention that it was the verbal parts, maybe not admitting to the kiss, for instance, with, with the first accuser, that might be one way to go about it because both of them seemed quite reasonable based on what I have read. And obviously that is through a media filter. Um, and I don't have all the information, but anyway, that was, that was point one. Point number two is, is the response that I thought was interesting. So again, he denied all claims of inappropriate behavior, uh, after the first woman came forward, which is a sweeping broad and dangerous statement to me because that covers a lot of ground, all claims of inappropriate behavior. Now he's put himself in a situation where anything could render that uh, untrue. But I did think, and you know, you and talked about how the how the sausage is made. That having those four staffers come out, that is still valuable from a PR angle, um, because again, th- this this is being fought in the court of public opinion, right? I mean, Andrew Cuomo's under under some pressure for the way he's handled some issues recently in New York State. I won't get into those; it's politics. But but you do want people who already like him want reason to believe he didn't do this. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of people approach these things is they already have an opinion of a person and they're looking for reasons for that opinion to be true. And coming out with those those four four people, I think what was relatively effective in a PR perspective. Yeah, well, particularly in a country like the US, right, where we know that politics have become so polarized that it really becomes an issue of is this individual on my team or is this individual on their team? And that effectively informs what media sources you're going to consume related to the issue and ultimately what your opinion is going to be on the guilt or innocence of the the individual, right? And that's a that's a huge problem. Yeah, it is a huge problem. Um and I I mean I debate my father about this all the time. I mean, he's, he is, he's a Trumper and um, you know, it, it doesn't matter what anybody does. It, you either agree with Trump and you're okay or you don't and you're not okay. Um, and that's really sort of the, the, the line that he draws in the sand. And then the third point, you know, the independent investigation, I mean, we kind of talked about this, you and I also think, you know, this looks good again for people that already like Cuomo. This looks like he's being proactive and he's not scared of any facts that might come out. 
you know, but at the same time, it does have to be a, a truly independent investigation without any interference. And who knows if that's going to be the case. But, you know, in sum on this, Hugh, like I, I was thinking, this is still a relatively new way to deal with this. I, I talked off the top about sort of the, the, the routine of, you know, allegations are made um, and then there there might be some statement sort of, you know, denying the allegations and then maybe some punishment of some kind um, or more women come out and then it becomes, you know, too big of a an issue to deny any further. And, you know, the punishment is meted out. This 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 is like a sort of version 2.0 where, you know, the man being accused is coming out swinging, but at the same time also, you know, agreeing to this investigation or being seen to push for the investigation and making sure that it was sort of independent, at least in his words. So it does look a little bit more sophisticated, I think, from a PR angle. It looks like he's a little bit less scared of what might come out of something. It looks like he's being forward thinking um, in a small way. I don't want to overstate this, but I, I think I don't know if he's getting PR advice or what, um, but he does look a little bit more proactive and a little bit less afraid uh, than other men who have found themselves in this spot recently. Yeah. And I, you know, I think much will hinge on the veracity of that investigation. And I do think that that is the right approach. Um, step back, bring in an independent, you know, external investigator who can interview all the relevant parties and fact find as much as they possibly can. And, and again, that doesn't necessarily mean that if they say this didn't happen, that it didn't happen or, um, but at least you can be seen to taking all steps to try and thoroughly address address the issues. I'm all for the workplace investigation. I know um, some of my colleagues in in the employment bar, um, some who shall remain nameless, are not fans of the the workplace investigation. They believe that these are issues that should be dealt with internally. I am not one of those individuals. Um, absolutely, bring in an external third party who doesn't have those connections to the employees who isn't familiar with the landscape of the uh, of that particular company that they can come in and they can learn about it from the ground level. They can talk to whoever and whomever they need to speak with and gather whatever evidence they need to gather to come to an objective and clear conclusion because these issues are really, really important. And the reality is, Cam, that when you proceed to litigation, uh, you know, as we've said on this show before, and again, to pull another old adage, really the only people that win in litigation are the lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. It's really not the victory that clients on either side of the fence um, would, would believe it to be. So, you know, let's, let's find some alternative routes. So I hope the investigation um, achieves what it needs to achieve here and, and we can kind of get to the bottom of this. In the show notes, I've added a couple of uh, New York Times articles on this because they've been really at the at the front of it. And, um, you know, based on some remarks in there, I do have some doubts that this is it. It seems like this is a reputation that uh, the governor has had for quite some time based on some remarks in there. So I think there is at least a decent possibility that other women may come forward. And so... Yeah, there may be a much bigger issue here by the time this is even listened to, um, you know, in a few days. This story could have evolved quite a bit. I, I did want to mention one last thing that kind of scares me as a PR person um, with this, and it's a bit of a sidebar, and it's the the, the Medium essay. Medium is um, actually they've run into tons of financial trouble uh, now as a business, but basically it's a blog site where anybody can post a blog and it looks really nice. And you can share the link and, and so be it. And a lot of people have turned to Medium to write long missives to explain themselves or explain something. And it's dangerous from a PR perspective because you there's not much accountability there. And again, I'm not speaking directly to the, the Medium essay that was written by Lindsay Boylan, who was the first accuser here, but just in general that um, you, know, you, you can write a very long piece that is not necessarily fact-checked or cleared or investigated to any degree or edited, and then it's out there and media can find it and all kinds of people can find it and it can make a bit of a headache for your client. Now, this is not to say don't do this, only that it's sort of another example of where we are at in the 
culture, which is we do jump to conclusions quickly. We take bits of information that, you know, we already have confirmation bias for or against and embrace it or reject it based on current, you know, sort of beliefs. So this is, this is difficult. It's difficult when something goes out on there um, just because it doesn't go through any of that scrutiny first. And I think, you know, one of the biggest cases of this was the Aziz Ansari thing from a couple of years ago um, where there was a long essay written by uh, a, a woman who, you know, really sort of dragged his name through the mud. She had some legitimate complaints, but there were a lot of people who didn't agree uh, with her conclusions. And it was a media firestorm. That was a couple of years ago. If you're not familiar with that, I, I have those links in the show notes as well. I, I do suggest having a look at it because it shows sort of what can happen on the other side when someone is destroyed to a degree that maybe isn't sort of commensurate with what they did. Uh, so that's it, Ewan. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but geez, writing things publicly that way is just, it's scary. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we could probably have a whole show on the, the Aziz Ansari thing. Um, I, I don't know that I saw it necessarily the way that you saw it, but um, I, I take the point that it was at least a controversial forum to, um, to, to put the issue forward. But, you know, it also begs the question of what women and, and, and demonstrably what women are, are dealing with, right? I, I can't imagine that there's really any woman out there who sits down and thinks like, Hey, this is going to be a really cool and fun, engaging exercise. Um, it, it it generally would suggest that they feel as though they have nowhere else to turn to to address these issues, or that workplaces aren't addressing them appropriately. The media certainly isn't addressing them appropriately. Um, that there's a culture of of entitlement that is not addressing them appropriately. And I guess at the end of the day, where, where do you go? And I'm certainly not saying that medium is the solution. Um, but maybe it at least speaks to the fact that it's an issue that we need to, we need to do better on. Right. Um, if you were of, saying that in 2012, I may agree, but at this, in this year to say that the women with accusations against men in the workplace have nowhere to go, I think is not accurate. I think that there's a huge appetite to hear this. I think there are workplaces that are very aware of this now that act really quickly uh, on this. And especially in the Lindsay Boylan case, I mean, she didn't need to turn to medium because you saw Charlotte Bennett didn't turn to medium and had huge coverage as well. So I, I think that argument probably went out the door around 2016, 2017. Well, then, then maybe we just leave it that you and I uh, agree <laughs> to disagree on this issue, Cam, because uh, I, I, I can tell you, I can tell you, albeit anecdotally, but I can tell you with 100% certainty that that is not the case, that workplace environments, they have become better at addressing these issues. As I talked about off the top, um, you know, workplace training, um, amendments and revisions to policies and procedures manuals. But this stuff happens every day. And any number of women in these situations are left where they feel as though their only choice is to either keep quiet or to find another place to work because they understand that there are two sides. And I've also talked about this many times in the show cam that there are two sides to the coin. We have the legal implications on one side where what am I entitled to do and what am I legally not entitled to do on one side of the coin? And then on the other side, we have the very, very practical implications of how do I act upon these particular issues? Because I have to work with these people and I have to see them every day. And I like my job and I need benefits to, you know, cover the med medication that my child needs or any number of other issues. And the idea of blowing up my, my working life to raise an allegation of inappropriate conduct because my boss decided that he was going to take it upon himself to make an inappropriate gesture. For a lot of women, that's just not a choice that they're prepared to engage with. So you know, we still have a long, long way to go in addressing these issues in a workplace context or any other for that matter. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait, oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. All right, Ewan, what do you have this week besides that uh, Bridgerton show? Well, um, 
Email, Cam. Email. Did you see this article, Cal Newport in the New Yorker? No. Um, it, it, okay. So, yeah, you should check this out. It's it's an excerpt drawn from his book, uh, which is titled A World Without Email. The article is titled Email is Making Us Miserable. And I get it. I know everybody everybody's read an article about this, about how inefficient and all the problematic uh, issues surrounding email, but this one was just—it was just better than all the other ones that I've read, and it, it cited a lot of really, really compelling studies around the issue of examining stress and email. You know, one of the studies, Cam, they—you know—we're looking at the University of California. They hooked up forty office workers to wireless heart rate monitors for twelve days, and they recorded heart rate variability which is a common technique for measuring mental stress. You know, they also monitored computer use in order to correlate email checks with stress levels and any guesses as to what they learned. Oh yeah. Sure. That there's anxiety with email. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a common, common sense conclusions, right? That the longer you spend on email in a given hour, the higher your stress for that hour. Um, You know what I find interesting about this though? I, like email to me is really uh, fragmented in terms of people's experience with it, because like by no means does everyone use email now. Like a lot of people have moved entirely to social media for for their engagement. A lot of companies have moved to Slack, which cuts down dramatically on email. And like there's a lot of people out there that don't get like personal email anymore at all because everything is through chat apps and email is for newsletters and things like that. So I know there's a workplace component here, but there's also a personal component. And I feel like email has, it's no longer a consistent experience for everyone. And you talk to some offices and there's that Slack anxiety because there's messages constantly coming in there and you see the alerts on your phone and that's giving you the, it's the same result, same end result as email. Um, You know, you've got someone pinging you and you don't want to look at it. Um, But email itself, I think has become quite, quite, quite different now, but depending on who you are. Even the word ping, Cam. Who came up with that? Pinging you? Don't you ever I mean, say, I what, ping me? Close your eyes. Close your eyes. What do you What do you see when you picture someone pinging you? I literally, I'll tell you what I see. I see, you know, an individual with their index finger and they're just repeatedly poking me in the temple. That's, <laughs> that's what I visualize when I hear the word ping and pinging. It's just it's see, terrible. What do you like? Why did we let tech people develop the language around tech? Yeah. And that is a, a tech term. Like it, it's literally inside of a computer. When you ping something, it means you're notifying it or you're sending something to test it. So it is, it does have a literal meaning and yeah, that is weird how that has become really mainstream. Cause I, I would say the problem is you, you don't want to say email me because that's too, I mean, it's just one form of communication, but you don't want to say, well, you can Slack WhatsApp or email me. Whereas if you just say ping, it means any of the platforms you can reach me at. So it's just kind of shorthand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I get it. Anyway, I want, you know, one of the things I thought was cool about this article, Cam, was that a lot of the studies that they were, uh, they, the article references, they were all, the conclusions were consistent, even after they were adjusted for factors like a, age and sex and socioeconomic status, health behavior, body mass index, job strain, social support, you know, really sort of clarifying the idea that, look, this is just a problem across the board. And I'm going to leave, you know, I know you want to talk about uh, whatever you have on deck. So I'm going to give you the, just the last one quote, one sentence that um, I thought was really just sort of revelatory for me when I read this article. And that was this, Cam, the history of technology is littered with cautionary takes of what goes wrong when new tools yield superficial convenience, but are poorly matched with fundamental human nature. And I think that pretty much sums Mm -hmm. it up right there. Yeah. I think that applies to a lot of things. Okay. I have uh, a New York times article written by Ben Smith. And actually it's from a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to draw attention to it. Ben Smith, you may know, was the head of BuzzFeed for a long time. He's a very bright guy. He's sort of got the new media beat at the New York Times, uh, the same beat that um, David Carr used to have. And he's just um, an excellent writer in that spot. 
So the, the article is why the morality plays inside the times won't stop. Other news organizations have their own personnel dramas, but none attract the spotlight the way the times does. And I don't know if you've sort of been following along you and they've had a number of issues recently. They had let go to reporters just a couple of weeks ago for some comments that they made on an, or one of them made on an overseas trip. Uh, but there's been a lot of issues at the times recently. Um, and it's sort of, you know, Barry Weiss is, is another person who was there who recently left and there's kind of a civil war going on, um, in the newsroom of the New York times. It's not just the New York times. This is actually happening at other news organizations as well as sort of, you know, journalism is changing and expectations are changing. Um, and it's something that the times is grappling with. But they do get a lot of attention for it, and they seem to be very high profile on some of these issues. And this is just a a dive into why, sort of what has happened so far and why this isn't really going to change because of the climate that we're in. And if this this is a very kind of nerdy media kind of um, article, so it might not be for everyone, but if you're interested in how newsrooms function, and especially, you know, arguably one of the most prestigious newsrooms in the world, um, this is is a must read. It's a nice deep dive into it. And... uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. Let me ask you this, Cam. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that, um, I mean, I know we're, let's stick with the New York Times specifically, that they're engaging in these sorts of debates and issues in the newsroom, regardless of what the, you know, the consequences are? Well, one of the issues with the Times is a lot of this is happening on Slack. And um, as you just said in that quote that you just read, uh, you know, sometimes the technology doesn't match sort of human human nature. And I think this is a good example of that. In general, I think it is good that they grapple with these issues because, you know, the world is changing and expectations are changing. And I think, you know, keeping up with that and, and having these discussions ongoing is ultimately a healthy thing in general. So, yeah, I'm in favor of it. But I also think that, you know, there's still... I do worry a little bit about, you know, there's certain points of view that people see as absolute. And um, I think those are, that's a little bit concerning to me. I, it, you know, even, even an abhorrent opinion uh, sometimes has a reason for being held and has to be addressed directly rather than kind of pretended it's not there. And uh, I think that's kind of sometimes one of these challenges, but in general, it's positive. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Anything you want to mention, Ewan, before we uh, wrap up and you return to your COVID-ravaged city there? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, when you put it that way, I don't don't know if I want to end the show and go back to my COVID-ravaged city. (laughs) But I don't really have anything else to contribute, so. Well, yeah, I'm done, too. I'm tapped out. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Again, uh, we hope you enjoyed the show and don't miss anyone in the future either. You can subscribe to us in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels and social media. Of course, we're on all the usual ones. And uh, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. Um, You can get that at prlawpodcast.club. All one word, prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.